Hi, I'm Connor Byrne, and before we get started into this episode of That's What I Call Marketing, just a reminder that we have a live event coming up in Dublin on September 28th featuring Caroline Donlan of Sky Ireland and Paul Durbin, who is currently CMO of the National Lottery. You can get your tickets by registering for free on That's What I Call Marketing.com. Hi, I'm Connor Byrne, and this is That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique insights. And today I am joined by Dr. Emmanuel Probst, Global Leader, Brand Thought Leadership at Ipsos, adjunct professor at the University of California at Los Angeles, where he teaches consumer market research. And he writes about consumer psychology for numerous publications and is a Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author of the book Brand Hacks. And he is out with a new book called Assemblage, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation. And we talk today about the book and what it's all about. We dig into the commercial role that marketers play in this world, the dynamic nature of brands, how and what brands can and cannot control, the power of brand equity, how and if small is the new big and what that actually really means, the role of D2C, and we talk about consumption and how we marry responsibility with profit. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Emmanuel Probst. Emmanuel, thanks for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. It's great to have you here and uh, I know it's early morning for you, so I hope you've, you've had your coffee. If you're a coffee drinker. Good morning, then... Thank you for having me on the show. Well, listen, before we get into, I know we're here to talk about your new book. We'll get into that, but just let me start with, tell me about your your day job, your global lead brand thought leadership, thought leadership at Ipsos. Tell me a bit about the, the day job. Yeah, I'm lucky to have a very compelling role here at Ipsos. So Ipsos is um, one of the largest market research agencies in the world. And in that capacity, at Global Lead Brand Thought Leadership, I create and disseminate and monetize ideas with our client partners and also with media outlets and industry associations and universities. So my role is to help build the frameworks that will help our clients measure, but also predict and optimize the performance of their brands. Amazing. And you're also, you work at the University of California in a teaching capacity? Indeed. Um, at UCLA, so the University of California at Los Angeles, I teach consumer market research. And um, I also do some writing on the side, and my latest book is Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation, that looks at uh, building brands that make a positive impact on people and the world around them. So the starting point for the book is simply to say that brands can no longer just sell products, but brands must also transform people and the world we live in. Great. Well, look, I want to get. do you want to get into that? I, and I wanted to ask you, you know, as you, you brought this book into the market, you know, what what's it bringing? What's new? And is it challenging any core beliefs? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question, Connor? Of course, I, yeah, I bringing, bringing the book to, to the market. Um, mm -hmm. you know, 
what was the the thinking like is it what's it bringing that's new what is mm. it challenging any core beliefs that are out there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well i think uh, uh the the world is evolving and now is a good time for marketers and i'm very optimistic about marketing and advertising for advertising for years to come and here's what i mean for many years we were the guys selling cigarettes and alcohol which we still do some of that but today marketers and advertisers brands have an opportunity to again not just sell products but also make a positive impact on people make a positive impact on businesses on economic recovery on society on sustainability on uh, governance and that's to say that marketers have this opportunity to also help shape expectations from their audience, have the opportunity to educate. What I mean by this is provide people, small businesses with new skills and have the opportunity to do the right thing for the environment. So the role of marketers is evolving in a good way from just sell, 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 more products, more promotion into activities, activations that I believe are more meaningful and make a better contribution to the world in general. And this book shows you how. So do you, with that context, and we can go into some of the things you've, you've touched on here because you definitely want to get into some of those, those points, but do, do you believe then that marketers need to move away from the commercial piece of what they're doing? No, I think it's... Uh... A important component of what we do, let's balance performance and brand strategy. And so performance is important to drive traffic and drive purchase almost immediately. And it's important because that is how companies are measured. Then we have to report to investors and uh, people are often goal-setted towards near immediate sales performance, if you will. So yeah. that's important. However, performance marketing is not a strategy. And what I mean by this is you can push people to a website or a product this week or next week. That is not building a brand, though. It's important to balance this with a strategy to differentiate and distinguish your brand and establish your brand as a unique entity that will command loyalty and that will hopefully command a premium and uh, that people will choose over competition. Yeah, and I've recently had the likes of um, James Herman, Peter Field, Mary uh, Kirkini mm -hmm. from Cantor as well, talking about th this this thing. But I think what, what they haven't said that you've said that, that I just want to dig into a bit is marketers need to move away from sell 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 and i would i would and that's where i'm asking the question around the commerciality of of marketing do you believe marketers need to think less commercially because i i i find that kind of maybe strange i, I don't know if you are mm -hmm. saying that so i just wanted to try to get clarity i understand the difference between performance and long-term brand building so i'd love to just dig into that is your view that marketers too focused on the commercial element of the role, regardless of how you call it performance or brand? 
I think marketers should always think about what is commercially viable and make no mistake, we're here to make a profit or we're here to place a product, place a brand, uh, even if you work for government organizations or maybe you work for a specific city or a specific not politician. I'm sorry? Not for profits, I would think as well. Yeah, you know? not for yeah. profits, absolutely. In that regard, as marketer, you're here to promote a brand or a individual or a product, or as you said, a, a not-for-profit organization. So the commerciality, to use your terminology of what we do, is at the heart of almost all decisions we make. And with that said, to fulfill this goal, to fulfill this objective, we can do so through performance marketing, what we do immediately, how we drive traffic, how we can drum up business in the short term, and a sound brand strategy to establish a vision on how we are going to differentiate and establish the brand in the market for years to come. Yeah, yeah. And you say in the book that, and it kind of goes to the title of the book, you, you say that brands are to dynamic assemblages of social and cultural attributes that form mm -hmm. clusters of association and meaning. And, you know, when I read that, I kind of, I went to, well, that feels like it's long term. You have to build those long term associations and, and, and meaning. But what do you mean by their dynamic assemblages of social and cultural attributes that form those clusters? I'd love to understand your, it's in the book, but for anyone who's yet to read the yeah. book, what do, you, what do you mean? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's have a very important change in the marketing and advertising world. So we said the first shift is um, brands can make a positive impact on people and the world around us. The second shift is brands are no longer static. Brands evolve dynamically depending on the context, depending on culture, depending on people's needs. And what I mean by this is brands evolve much faster than they ever did before. And brand owners, marketers, advertisers no longer fully control the narrative. What I mean by this is as a marketer, you no longer dictate to the audience what your brand stands for. What you can do is you establish the foundation for the brand, the big idea, uh, the key positioning, if you will. And from there, you're going to co-construct the creative execution. You're going to co-construct the strategy with the audience. And that is because, thanks to or because of, social media and messaging apps and technology and everything we have, People, not even consumers, but also citizens and patients and key opinion formers, people feel that they want to talk back at brands. That means they will be willing to promote and advocate for a brand when the brand does the right thing. They will, of course, be willing to buy the product and recommend the product to friends and family. However, they will be willing to challenge the brand when the brand doesn't do the right thing. And that means they might campaign against your brand. That means they might cancel your brand. 
and sometimes they might even take your brand to court. And we have some very concrete examples of this. So a not-so-dramatic example is Pepsi a few years ago did a commercial with Kendall Jenner. And it didn't really make sense for Kendall Jenner to stop a Black Lives Matter protest mm -hmm. with a can of Pepsi. So Pepsi pulled the ad. Well, that's not too big of a deal. We still remember it, though. Uh, however, most recently, you see Primark, the retailer, for example, is being sued by a journalist uh, because this journalist contends that Primark's claims of um, sustainability and brand purpose are not substantiated. And of course, you see some more impactful uh, I don't know if I should say mistakes, but events with a brand like Bud Light, AB InBev, mm -hmm. where Bud Light engaged in a campaign with a transgender influencer and that backfired to the tune of 23 to 28% decline in sales year on year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all very, well, I wasn't aware of the, the pre-mark example, but obviously the other two, I was. And, and as you were talking through that and, you know, I I was going to come to it later, but, but let's talk about it now is that the idea of brands relinquishing control of of their brands. Like, it, you know, as I read the book, it felt to me that you were probably advocating for that and saying that, like, like you're saying here now, brands need to create the foundational core construct of what it means to them to be that brand. And then almost, you know, if, if you love something, let it free. And so let it into the world and let people people then, you know, play around with it and decide what it means to them. But clearly that yeah. comes with, with huge risk. How can a brand, you know, because I, I, look, I, I believe most people are well-intentioned and even the examples you, you, you've you given here probably come from the place of good intent. Um, I, I probably don't know the depth of them um, to, to say anything other than that. And so how do brands protect themselves against like we've a good intent you know we believe this is what our brand stands for and you know like if it's purpose or, or not purpose whatever like we can mm -hmm. that, that's a whole other debate whether that's that's a valid thing but you know how do they protect themselves against kind of the the backlash and, and as you call it being cancelled yeah so you said something very important connor you said the brand is what it means to them and so I think it's so crucial to emphasize this for our listeners today. That is, the brand, your brand is not what you think it is, how you feel about it. About it. it is how your audience think it is. It is how your consumers, your audience perceives your brand. Yes, but you, as a brand, you have to find a, you have to have a foundational belief, which is probably yeah. based in consumer research. So, I think it, yeah. it is okay to say that that is what the brand believes they are. <laughs> like they yeah, have to, and, because brand owners, you have to have that, right? Oh, oh absolutely, and yeah. that's really what I meant earlier. That's what I described by saying you're in control of a big idea. So, as the yeah. brand owner, you establish what the brand stands for, and you establish where you fit in if you will, in the marketplace. And then you co-construct the meaning of the brand with your audience. So 
If we think of Airbnb, for example, well, the foundation of Airbnb is that flexibility that you can, uh, Airbnb doesn't just sell a bed and a pillow because you can get that from, from Marriott and Hilton if you want, but yep. really fulfills your need for discovery and adventure, right? Whereby you're going to access a room that feels a lot more personal and authentic and your host might guide you through the local community and you might uh, indulge in cooking classes and um, walk around the streets with your host and really fulfill that desire for community adventure and discovery. So the point being that Airbnb establishes what the brand stands for. That is a unique, different authentic, adventurous way of traveling, and then co-constructs the execution with the guests and the hosts. I think that's yeah. really an example of, of what you're saying, Connor. Yeah. So you are uh, very right to say that brands must establish what they stand for and then co-construct uh, with the audience. Now, how can, back to your question, how can brands get that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this is the gold. <laughs> they, uh, absolutely, or at least not get it wrong. Yeah, And that's where I feel that testing and research is so important. And here's why. We all have a bias depending on mm. our education and where we live and where we work. And that's why I was saying earlier that the brand is what they say it is, not what you think it is. As a brand owner, as a marketer, you know so much more about your brand and your vertical, your industry, than anyone else out there. And very often, marketers live in big cities, maybe more progressive markets, if you will, and tend to be sometimes more educated. And they tend to consume a lot of media. And that's all to say that, and by the way, I'm guilty of all this myself. Oh, 100%. Agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's all to say that marketers um, don't really have the best pulse on, uh, if anything, they don't have a cross-sectional understanding of their market. So that is where testing the idea around the country or around the world, depending on what you're about to deploy, is so important in different pockets, not so much for demographics, you know. I mean, sure, we can balance on age and the region and, and what have you, but just as important are the psychographics and so the sets of beliefs and attitudes that people stand by. And yeah. I think that's how we can determine uh, what is a winning idea, or if anything, we can mitigate risk on an idea that um, would do some damage to the brand. And yeah. so the last aspect, Connor, is that brands must demonstrate, not only claim, but demonstrate their claims and demonstrate their purpose. And we spoke about two evolutions. One, marketers can make a positive impact. Two, brands are dynamic. They're no longer static. And the third one, I would say, is brands can no longer just claim, but must also demonstrate their purpose yeah. and their contribution to society. And if they do so, 
And if it aligns with the brand, well, good things will happen. Yeah, yeah. I actually think it's interesting that the word dynamic that you, you've used a couple of times now is, is actually good news from for marketers, right? It, it, because you can evolve. You you know, it's possible to have been one thing and to, to for that to evolve over time. I mean, look, you know, I, I think recent example of something like, like the Barbie movie is a wonderful mm -hmm. example of a brand that has just kind of evolved over time. Yes, they've had they had difficulties in the past in terms of you know revenue. They were still phenomenally, you know, selling a lot of a lot of Barbie. But but they evolved, you know, kind of what it meant. But it, but it stayed core to the belief of of what that you know was founded around. You know that kind of you know young girls can aspire to be anything. And they've just modernized it, which is really helpful that you can have that dyna dynamism in in a brand right that it doesn't have to be static like there's some positive news in this for marketers it doesn't have to be scary so the barbie movie is an excellent illustration of what you referred to earlier connor um, you quoted the book that is uh, successful brands are dynamic assemblage of personal social and cultural attributes and Barbie exemplifies the failure and then the wonderful success mm. of going through this cycle. So five, seven, nine years ago, Barbie had lost relevance, uh, was no longer appealing to new generations, was kind of candidly stuck in the past, had not evolved to align or to fit in yeah. with culture and the progressive values that are important to our society and younger people today. And let's be honest, uh, many marketers thought the brand was, was gone mm -hmm. and Mattel had to go through rounds and rounds of layoffs. And today, after much fine tuning, if you will, and also taking some creative risks, which is brave from yeah. a marketing standpoint, well, the movie is coming out in a few days and Mattel has engaged in about 100 brand partnerships, yeah. licensing partnerships with all sorts of products and services as a direct inference from this movie. So it also showcases a new role for brands whereby brands can be involved in creating content. We yeah. saw this a few years ago with the Lego movie and we now see this Barbie movie coming out where the brand is center stage and the storytelling, not just the storytelling, but the artistic aspect of uh, the brand narrative is becoming very prevalent. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. I think that's such an interesting, and we're all a bit obsessed with it at the minute, I, um, but it's it's a really interesting interesting one. Um, as, I, as I read through the book, another thing that kind of came out to me quite, quite strongly was the power of brand and brand equity, you know, and, and you know, so as I read that, I'm, I, I was like, okay, Emmanuel really kind of has a, seems to have a strong belief in brand equity. You, you did have a, a wonderful example of um, Virgin Mobile in the UK, which I thought was a, a great example of the power of, of brand. Can you just explain that one to people? I just found it quite an interesting uh, example of brand equity. Yeah, we often hear the question, 
do brands really matter and why do brands matter? And you know, it's a very fair question. Uh, and the answer is, think of a product like light beer or think of a product like vodka. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for the brand, how could you tell me the difference between Grey Goose versus Smirnoff versus Kettle One? Uh, in light beer, how could you tell me the difference between Bud Light versus Coors Light and Miller Light in a blind test? If you're in the UK, how can you tell me the difference between Carlsberg and Stella Artois? Very few people could in the context of a blind test. What carries the product is really the brand. That is what is going to command loyalty, is going to command a premium, and is going to get people to choose this product among others and is going to command trust. People will trust the brand to deliver a product that is consistent in terms of its quality, in terms of its delivery. And the example you're referring to, which really showcases the power of branding, goes back to about 2001, 2002, when mobile phones were something very new mm. and at the time t-mobile should i say t-mobile had started building a network in the uk and virgin had started a brand and a cell phone service a mobile phone service however virgin had not built its own network of cell phone towers and so virgin was renting the infrastructure from T-Mobile. Yeah. What's interesting is when we ask people, again, around 2001, 2002, what do you like best? Do you like Virgin or T-Mobile? And people will say, well, Virgin is so much better. <laughs> it's, such, it's a much, much better network. It's more reliable and it's better and it's for people like me, you know, what we call brand desire and brand preference. It's a network for people like me. Well, that's really ironic because de facto, if you were to place a call with your Virgin Mobile, you will be solely relying on the T-Mobile network. Yeah. So this had only to do with the perception of Virgin as a brand in contrast with T-Mobile. It's, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I, I, I do love these stories. It's a really uh, interesting story. Uh, in, in Ireland, actually, many, many years ago, there was a, a there's a soft drink called Sidona and it was mm -hmm. bought out. Um, but the I remember the all the details, but whoever bought it out just want, just bought the recipe and didn't buy the brand. And then they tried to repackage it and it didn't work. And so they had to go back and then pay extra money to buy the name because they thought they thought the product was good, right? Which, what it was, all the equity sat within within that with that brand. I guess when when I look and read and listen to these wonderful stories of of brand equity, you know, a lot of them are bigger brands, and and I often think about people who are listening to this who are, you know, working in smaller brands, you know, smaller categories. How can they take this information and do something with it? Because you know, they're they're facing probably maybe slightly different pressures within their own organizations, particularly now. They do. And uh, to your point in the book, I like to look at big brands, but also much, much, much smaller organizations. I'm thinking of 
asphalt in France, for example, is a DTC company that done clothing, that does clothing apparel that is obviously much smaller than someone like Levi's or Tommy Hilfiger. And uh, um, anyway, there are many examples of smaller brands. So here's the bad news. As a small brand, of course, you have less marketing budget and less time than the big guys. Here's the good news. Your best position to deliver an authentic, genuine, relatable experience. What we call reducing the social distance between the brand and the audience. What I mean by this is when you buy a bottle of Coke or a burger from McDonald's, of course, you trust the brand and the brand carries a lot of equity. The downside is it's very hard to make such product feel local and close to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In sharp contrast, when you buy your vegetables within a 30 miles radius, or you drink a beer or a bourbon or whiskey from a local brewery, here the brand is going to be able to um, emphasize this connection to your local community and the positive impact it makes to the local community. And we see this in uh, spirits, in particular in gin and yeah. in whiskey, whereby, without getting into details, the brands that grow best right now are the local craft authentic brands and all the brands that use natural ingredients and processes, production processes that are more traceable and sustainable and transparent. So this really illustrates, and you have a lot more details in the book on how to do this and many, many more examples. Uh, it illustrates the power, the impact, the strength that small brands can make and big, big brands cannot to the point that you very often see the big brands, the big um, house of brands, as we call them, yeah. by the smaller guys because yeah, yeah. they search for this authenticity. They search for this connection between the brand and the audience that a very generic product or should I say very standardized global product does not bring. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's interesting. And I know in like in chapter nine of the book, you you talk about brand relevance and you you say that small is is the new big, which is kind of tied to this this conversation we're having. There's a there's a lovely example in there of Farrow and, and Ball, which I yeah. thought was great. But and we might talk about that, but as we do, one thing, and you've just mentioned it there, is a huge, I think any brand or business I, I could be wrong here, but most brand or business when they go into into setting up their business they want to scale like they are looking for scale so how do you balance small as the new big with you know the example of Faro and ball where they focus then on their brand because they want to kind of have that price premium and they wanted growth in the example in the book in the book yeah Faro and ball for our listeners is a upscale brand of paint and uh, it's still a fairly niche brand and what I mean by this is Fire and Ball I believe is about 130,000 gallons a year and to put things in perspective someone like 
Sherwin Williams is probably about two million gallons. And as such, it's still a somewhat small brand. So how do you scale? Well, you scale in a reasonable fashion and you scale part of your operation, but not everything. Let me explain. In the case of Farrow and Ball, you don't scale by adding more shades of gray or more shades of white. You can still stick to the same 12 shades and you don't try to scale to the likes of Sher Sherwin-Williams that is going to bring 50, 60, 70 shades. You keep your production focused and small enough so that you get 12 excellent shades of whites. And importantly, you counsel your clients in terms of what is the shade that's going to work best for them, as opposed to overwhelm people with too many options. Mm. The part that you can scale, though, as they do, is you're going to scale your retail footprint. And you'll do so in markets where your product will resonate. And that's how you can open additional stores in London and a store in New York and a store in Los Angeles and so on and so forth. But here again, by scaling, what do we mean? You can expand your footprint, but that doesn't mean that you should expand your square footage. The stores we're talking about are fairly small, you know, maybe, maybe 2,000 square feet, 3,000 mm -hmm. square feet. And scaling does not necessarily mean more products and more brands and more uh, larger square footage and bigger website and all that. Scaling means spreading the good word about one thing or two things you're doing right. Mm. And ultimately, you might stay as a uh, somewhat niche brand, and that's okay because you're not, when you're Fire and Ball, you're not trying to sell paint to everyone. If you can um, win on that market, if you can own, take ownership of this yeah. market of people that have more uh, refined taste, if you will, or believe that interior design is important, that's a big win enough itself. You don't need to yeah. sell paint to everyone. Yeah. And yes, yes, you can have kind of that. Again, it goes back to the price premium. You know, you're you're charging more for the less quantity. and But also I think sometimes you then see brands like that maybe spin off another brand that actually is the the scaled version right that is so you know mm -hmm. there, there's it's it's, it's interesting um that 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 can, that that can coexist as well like there are those kind of opportunities different difficult in certain product categories i think and um, one of the things that we, we touched mildly on it there was kind of the idea of, of, of direct consumer and you have a, a fact in the book that we now favor d2c and e-commerce across all categories Mm -hmm. um, like more than brick and mortar stores yet there's other kind of evidence out there and you know fast company in january saying the the era of dtc brand is over fortune magazine we're talking about uh forerunner uh vc that say that it's the kind of businesses um that they look to invest in you know are not direct to consumer mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know and and but then 
I, I look at the likes of Mark Ritson and he's kind of suggesting that what Daryl Rigby was saying in, in Harvard Business Review in 2011 was you need to constantly blend a mix of channels. So where where's your stance on, on D2C? Because you're saying in the book that we prefer it, yet there seems to be a lot of evidence of saying it's less preferred. So what's the what's your view? Yeah. Okay, from a consumer standpoint, DTC brands shaped people's expectations for what the buying and delivery experience should feel like. And what I mean by this is Amazon shaped people's expectations towards ordering a product in three clicks. And I'm going to receive the product within 48 hours. And if I'm not happy with the product, it will be very easy for me to return the product yeah. and I can read the product and buy some companion products and so on and so forth. So in that regard, there is no going back, let alone after COVID, whereby consumers will want a frictionless, seamless buying and delivery experience. Now, the reason why so many DTC brands fail is exactly, we're going back, Connor, to where we started this conversation on performance marketing in contrast with brand building, whereby many DTC brands drove traffic or I should say drive traffic to their website and convert someone once. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean this individual will come back and come back on a regular basis and uh, the brand cannot develop this customer lifetime value and become profitable. That's because you can spend all the money you want on advertising. If that first purchase, second purchase, those don't make money, right? They pay for the advertising costs. <laughs> so that is what impacts profitability let alone in markets like, you know, if you sell mattresses and glasses and things like this, those are not items people buy every day. There is a DTC brand here in the US that I like a lot. It's called Drops. And they sell laundry detergent. And sure, I buy from them. But the reality is I buy from them only once a year on Black right. Friday. Not okay. because I don't want to. I like their product. But I'm not going to buy 1,000 uh, drops of laundry detergent, right? So a brand strategy is going to enable those companies to charge a premium to create repeat business, yeah. to improve customer lifetime value, and to your point, and that's what Ritson says, to sell across channels so that you don't get restricted to a niche audience that buys only online. Yeah. That is why you see successful DTC brands partnering with brick and mortar stores yeah. to sell those products in brick and mortar stores. Because at some point, you're going to need reach and you're going to need physical and mental availability for your product. Yeah. And unless you're Amazon, it is very, very, very hard and outrageously expensive to accomplish this online. So, yes to selling through several channels, and this stresses the importance of brand strategy balanced with performance marketing. Mm 
considering where uh, considering that the DTC experience is here to stay because Amazon shaped consumers' expectations towards this type of experience. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's very interesting because again, you look at you know if you've a if you've a product that's solving a problem, and James Herman talks about this in, in his book, is you'll find it not easy, but it will be easier to capture those people that are in market for that initially. And and it gets harder and harder over time because that lower hanging fruit gets higher and higher. And so that's where the, the importance of, I think the branding piece, you know, and, and again, I think branding is such a, a brand is it, it, almost like a dangerous word because people, people fear it, you know, and I think boards often are, are slightly scared of it because they think, Oh, it is, are you talking about a TV ad? But, you know, I think it's understanding what we mean by, by brand, you know, and I, I often, I refer to Butternut Box, which is a dog food brand. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's a D to C, well, D to D. Okay, excuse the pun, direct to dog, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> brand coming to the UK, based 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 in Ireland as well. And, um, but they do a very good job of kind of the brand living through every single touch point, every single touch point they have. Now, they are a direct to consumer brand. I, I don't know if they have plans to, to go brick and mortar at all but it's 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 a very interesting challenge for people to to grapple with you know if you if you're in that space especially as in most categories the last thing we need is yet another brand of dog food razors toothpaste or yoga pants (laughs) (laughs) you could say that about marketing podcasts emmanuel but i don't i don't agree And therefore, it is even more important and even more relevant to build a brand that stands for something. So to your point in dog food, for example, well, here in the United States, there's a brand called The Farmer's Dog. Mm -hmm. And the brand is successful because they prepare meals that are healthy and authentic for dogs and that are better than processed foods. There's also a brand here called Chewy, and they deliver dog food to, or pet food, I should say, to your door. And so that's a great example of everything we described here, meaning that's a DTC brand that delivers an Amazon-like experience, yet brings an important human connection in this experience. For example, if sadly your dog passes, uh, Chewy will send you a, a card with uh, maybe some flowers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, For the longest time, their CEO will send handwritten cards to his customers. So that is how you can make a difference through uh, a different value proposition, a different relationship, more authentic, genuine, personal, relatable relationship with your audience in a very crowded market where, candidly, nobody needed you mm. until you arrived. Nestle Purina has been around for years. We didn't need Chewy. We had kibbles well before Chewy. What we needed was a personal a relationship with the brand and a brand that will deliver and demonstrate empathy. Yeah, 
I, I do love that line. No one needed you. Um, yeah, it's a very important thing to, to remember. And actually, there's a point in the book, uh, I think towards the end, and, and you, you say, the more we consume, the lonelier we feel. I was like, it's like, God, thank God I was in a good place when I read that. Yeah. <laughs> <It's like, laughs> uh, can you talk a bit about that? Because I, I yeah. actually found a very powerful sentence to to, to read and, and explore. Yeah, that's uh, the paradox of choice and the paradox of technology. Uh, the more connected we are, the lonelier we feel. And uh, there is scientific evidence to, to back up what I wrote in the book. And for example, if you look at younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, uh, well, most of them might have hundreds of followers. Sadly, most of them don't have one friend that they feel comfortable calling at 3am if something happens or an individual in real life they really relate to. We also see very sadly that in terms of mental health, challenges with younger audiences are the all-time high whereby, um, well, they consume more antidepressants and anxiolytics and uh, overall have many, many more uh, mental health issues. And so the point is, it is not your device that connects you to the world, and it's certainly not your hundreds of followers. Mm. It is the meaningful relationships you can build with people around you and the meaning you find in the activities you indulge in or you take part in and sometimes the relationships you might have with some brands. I'm not saying that consumption is all wrong, but a more meaningful way to consume feel just more fulfilling. So you see this with upcycling, recycling, the circular economy. Yeah. Meaning, a few years ago, you would buy a new pair of jeans every six months. Today, many brands like Levi's, like Madewell, like Tommy Hilfiger, they encourage you to keep those garments for longer, to repair those garments, and eventually to bring them back to the store, resell the jeans to the store in return for a store coupon, and yeah. give the product a second life. Well, that feels a lot more meaningful than uh, buying new clothes every six months because you have the opportunity and the time to build a personal relationship with the jeans. And when you buy uh, gently worn used garments, you have this opportunity to give a new life to the product and a new identity to the product, which is way more powerful than buying something cheap that was made by in very poor labor condition on the other side of the world. Yeah, the, actually, in in France, in your in your native France, um, the the government are bringing in, I believe, uh, like li little micro grants for people to to help if they're repairing stuff. So, kind of you know, funding them for equipment for yeah. sewing kits. And I, I like, I heard about that. I thought that's that's incredible. You know, it's a very positive. Thing. And I think, you know, it's interesting for brands to find a place to exist in that world. I mean, I've some clothes that are older than my kids. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not fast fashion. I'm just not fashion at all. Um, but I I think, you know, 
somebody said it that you know it's not a question of I can now buy a pair of sneakers runners that are made out of recycled water bottles. That is that is great. Plastic water bottles get recycled into sneakers. Very good. The question should be, do I need a new pair of sneakers? Like so it's it's almost how brands can, you know, push back against the consumerism, which goes kind of back to all, one of our earlier points of like the commerciality of our roles. Like, I, you know, in a commercial world where, you know, there's there's boards and there's stock and there's all that kind of stuff that we have to be answerable to. How do you, how do how do brands balance that of you know what yeah. we need to sell? Okay, so here's why it all makes sense. So what you referred to is the right to repair movement, whereby yeah. you're not going to discard a product, whether it's consumer electronics or garments or what have you, but you have the opportunity to repair it. From a brand standpoint. The upcycling, recycling phenomenon really makes sense because, well, maybe you think you sell less. However, you also appeal to a wider audience. Uh, Lululemon yoga pants, if yeah. you buy them brand new, are something like $120 to $150 a pair. If you buy them gently worn, they might be only $60, $70, $80. So you now open the brand to a wider audience and generate food traffic from people who will not have come to the store otherwise. Yeah. And it makes sense also for people selling back the garment. Again, you're going to generate traffic and you have an opportunity to build the basket in store, uh, let alone if I give you a store coupon, obviously you're going to spend it in store. You're not going to take it to the bank. And importantly for consumers, this all makes sense. We spoke about a relationship with the product, how I'm going to make it more personal, more authentic. This relationship I have with the product, I'm going to make it mine. And it's also, so the book is written from the standpoint of consumer psychology. When we buy a gently worn item, this opportunity to give a second life to this item is also a way for us to establish a permanence between the past, the present, and the future. And again, I, I get into this in details in the book, but this is so important because while we enjoy the new technologies of AI and VR and what have you, it feels also very threatening. Mm -hmm. And as such, as individuals, we need to be reassured we need to be comforted about the future because the future is scary. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do this is to bring some comfort and reassurance to consumers by establishing this permanence again between the past, the present, and future. That's exactly what you do when you're 20 years old and you buy a old pair of jeans or a t-shirt of Guns N' Roses or yeah. Nirvana or Pulp Fiction. I see my students wearing those t-shirts yeah, yeah. and no likelihood. Uh, I saw a girl the other day wearing an MTV t-shirt and I asked her, I said like, wow, this is a cool t-shirt. She was like, yeah, people say so all the time. <laughs> and I told her, I said, have you ever watched MTV? She was like, no, why would I? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> she had no clue. <laughs> no, and I don't blame her. <laughs> she had no clue what MTV is about. 
but this sense of nostalgia takes her back to a past that was comforting and reassuring and helps her establish a sense of permanence and reassurance about her presence and therefore her future. So that is where consumption and brands are way more meaningful and way more important than just moving products with performance marketing on Monday morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, Emmanuel, it's been great talking to you. Before I leave you, um, it feels like this book is like, you know, obviously it's aimed at marketers, but it's broader. I think it's broader appeal mm-hmm. to people who are interested in kind of just behavior and, you know, and culture. It, it definitely feels like it has a broader appeal. But as a marketer, you know, get the book, you know, I read the book. What are you hoping people do as, a, as an outcome of, of reading your book? Yeah, thank you. The, the book is really optimistic. The book is to inspire the reader uh, and most importantly, to empower the reader to take action, to build brands that are more meaningful, more impactful, also more profitable, uh, deliver better return on ad spend, return on marketing spend, and to give brands and marketers and therefore readers to move product as we should while making a positive contribution and a positive impact on people. You know, forgive um, my choice of words, but it's also a little bit of a a feel-good type of book. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a book that's humble that tells you you can do it too. And what I mean by this is you don't have to be Airbnb with hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on advertising. You don't have to be a trust fund kid to be successful, nor do you need to graduate from the top 1% universities. Look, 99% of us did not go to the top 1% schools. I didn't, by the way. Mm -hmm. And 99% of us were not born with a trust fund. Yet there is an opportunity for each and every one of us to create brands that make more sense and make a difference while making a profit. And this book shows you how. Amazing. Make a difference, make a profit sounds sounds like a great way, great way to end. Emmanuel, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading the book and definitely some challenging pieces in it as well and you, and you say that up front you give some controversial examples um, which I, I enjoyed but um, you know thank you so much it was a great talking to you today thank you so much Connor and our listeners today pleasure connecting with you and of course Phil do not hesitate reaching out to me if you have any questions or any feedback I make a point at reading my emails reading my messages and I will uh, reply to you in a personal fashion. Amazing. That is great for people to know. Um, And I can add details of all that into the show notes as well so people know where to find you, find the book. And again, the the name of the book is Assemblage and it's it's out now. Thanks, Emmanuel. Thank you so much, Connor. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Emmanuel Prost. You know, at the start, I was wondering what our philosophies align on marketing. And as we talked, I I began to realize that actually, 
you know, what Manuel's trying to bring to, to market is, is not a, a companion to some of the other work that's out there. It's, it's certainly bringing a different perspective. It's not a how-to guide for marketers. It's a book that you should read to help you think about consumers, customers, yes, people, human beings, and then use it to think about how you can form your thinking about how your brand exists in the world. I think it's really important um, to have this addition to uh, the marketing library. And, you know, we all get better the more we read. It is available now. And so that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening or watching. That's what I call marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on that's what I call marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram. That's what I call marketing, where we share shorter clips from the episodes. And on Twitter at that's underscore marketing, where we just kind of talk about other marketing stuff as well. And as I said, you can watch our episode back now on YouTube by looking for That's What I Call Marketing. So thank you for taking the time for being with us. And until the next episode, I'm your host, Connor Byrne. Take care.